Good morning, everyone. I'm loud, <laughs> which I am in general. I think my kids would tell you. Um, clearly, we need to improve communication in this church because none of you got the memo. You're supposed to be traveling and not here to listen to me speak today. <laughs> so as I as we, uh, watched that video this morning, I have to tell you, um, I saw it on Friday when I was up messing with some things, and I was like, that is my family all the way. I also have you know that we went to a marriage conference held at this church this weekend, which by the way, if you missed it, I'm sorry you did, because God did some amazing things this weekend to get people to think, uh, to rekindle their relationships with one another. Uh, the picture of the guy in the video this morning, him, him sitting in his car waiting for his wife to come out, <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Before this weekend, because I promised her after this weekend that I would come back up to the house to help her with whatever she needed help with. So, I'm trying to. So as I as I uh, got these clothes out yesterday, I said to my wife, I said, "Honey, um, are my are my car clothes done in the laundry? Are they are they clean?" And she said, "Yeah, they're clean." And I said, "Well, I need them for church tomorrow." And she, with horror, said, why would you need these for church tomorrow? I said, I'm going to wear them. No, you're not. Really? No, I'm not going to wear them. But these are my car shirts and my painting shirts, too. If you can see, you can see the paint all over them. Each of these splotches likely has a story of some room in my house that's been painted. Um, it should also serve as a warning to you if you ever ask me to come paint your house. <laughs> it could be everywhere. When Heather and I first got married, I had more than one paint shirt. In fact, every pair of shirt, every shirt or pair of shorts I had or pants I had was could be a paint shirt at a, at a moment's notice. To which my wife said, "Can you just pick one set?" And this is my set. And even my paint shirts say things like "Hooked on Jesus" because he is part of who I am. Uh, I have this shirt because I've been spending the last two weeks working on a car. If you know me and cars, we are not friends. As Gary likes to say, he believes, and I, I'm starting to buy into it, uh, cars are the spawn of Satan. <laughs> because they are expensive and they are difficult and they are challenging. Um, and so I've been working on the brakes, and tomorrow I'm going to work on the brakes for the third time trying to get change out of caliper this time. If you were to go to my house, I couldn't bring the car here and show it to you. If you were to go to my house, you would see um, where I had obviously been working on the car because all over the side of the car are greasy, nasty fingerprints. They're everywhere, all over the side of the car. And unfortunately, in my life, generally, I tend to leave fingerprints of myself wherever I've been. I'm a messy guy. And I've passed that on to my children, um, much to the chagrin of my wife. Uh, CJ might be the messiest child I've ever met, except maybe for me. Because, and, but the, the fact is that, that dirty or not, if, if you're walking through life with somebody, you're leaving fingerprints wherever you've been. You're leaving your mark on them, good or bad. There are some that I, I hate to say earlier in my life I left some bad marks on. And at the end of the day, I hope to leave more good marks than bad. 
but, but, but I do, I, I leave fingerprints. And, and there are people in, in, in my life that have left fingerprints on me that have changed the way I see others, that have uh, affected how I see my family, how I treat my family. There are people that have caused me to stop and really think, Rob, is this who you wanna be? Is this the message you wanna send? Our, what we've been working on, if, you, if you've not joined us before, is this is the last in a series called Credits. Credits takes a look at David's life as a movie and says, okay, look at all these people that don't, wouldn't get top billing, wouldn't get the lead actor role, but, but they all had fingerprints on his life. They all impacted his life in some way, shape, or form. We looked at Samuel, the teacher, the person who, who brought David up, who identified David as being the anointed of God and, and told the world that this man is here because God wants him here. We looked at, at Saul, who has an interesting place in David's life. He is, at one point, everything David wants to be, the anointed one of God. And on the other side, everything David shouldn't be. We saw the picture of, of Nathan, who has the courage to come to David in his time of, of poor choices poor consequences and to have the courage to say, David, you're out of line. These are all people that have fingerprints on David's life. So I have the task of, of finishing off the story. My, my end of it is uh, God. The person who had the greatest number of fingerprints on David's life is God. Because at the end of the day, David's story it's not really his story. It's God's story. If you were rolling through the credits of, of David's life, if he was excitedly telling you what had happened and how he was impacted, God's name wouldn't show up once or twice or three or four times. God's name would show up everywhere. We're going to look at how David viewed God because I think that's important. As we get to the end of David's life, we hear David realize that he is loved by the Lord, that he is seen as sinless and spotless. But if you know the story of David's life, he is anything but that. And we know that later in the book of Acts, or not the book of Acts, later Paul describes David is a man after God's own heart. And we have trouble sometimes reconciling that, the idea that, that David was not perfect. He was broken and messed up, and yet still a man after God's own heart. And so it's important for us, I think, to understand how David sees God. Because that's how we should see God. You with me? Nod your head. All right, off we go. David sees first, sees God as the producer of his life. I don't know if you know what a producer does in a, in a movie. I, I always wondered because I see their names up there. This producer, that producer, this production company, that production company. I'm going, how many producers do you need to make a movie? But the producer's job is actually huge. The producer selects the script that will be used for the movie. The producer decides how much the actors are going to get paid. The producer hires the director. The producer is in charge of the editing process. The producer 
rounds up all the finances and all the money to make it happen. Without the producer, does the movie get made? Never gets off the ground. It never starts. It never becomes what it's supposed to become. David viewed God as the producer of his life. There was no question ever in all of David's life that God was the person who made it happen. Good or bad, it was God that made it happen. And I sometimes wonder whether or not we think God is really the producer in our lives. Is he really the one that makes things happen? The answer is yes. I want you to hear what David says near the end of his life. In uh, 2 Samuel 22, verses 7 through 16, he's, he's crying out to the Lord. He's reminding the people around him of what God has done for him. If you've got a Bible, it might say the song of deliverance at the beginning of this chapter. But I'm going to pick up in verse 7, and it says, I called the Lord in my distress. I called to my God. For his, from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help reached his ears. And I want you to hear how David sees God. Watch this. Then the earth shook. And quaked. The mountains, the foundations of the heavens trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from his nostrils, and a consuming fire came from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze. He parted the heavens, and he came down on a dark cloud beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub, and he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness a canopy around him, a gathering of water and thick clouds. And from the radiance of his presence, just his presence, flaming coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High projected his voice. How does David see God? Awesome is the word. Awesome, powerful, strong, the creator of all things. Leave no doubt about that. David sees God as, the, as all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. He is the driver in David's life, and he realizes that nothing is possible without God. I'm a bit stubborn in that I often think that things are possible without God. Fixing a car is a good example. Because I try and try and try. And I go, I can do this. I know I can do this. And, and I'm going to tell you a little story. And you're going to go, this is trite and this is crazy. But I'm going to tell you this is exactly what happened. I was putting in an alternator. And I couldn't get, I, I got it in. And I turned the car on. And my, and my RPMs were about 3,000 RPMs. Is that right for idle? That's bad. <laughs> Right? Horribly bad. I couldn't get it to reset. I called a friend of mine who's a mechanic. I said, come over and look at it. He comes over. He drops meters on it. He takes a look at it. He goes, I'm going, this is not good. So finally, because, you know, I didn't do this up front. Finally, I stop and I pray to God and I say, Lord, what? What do you want me to do? How can you help me fix this car? And I unplug the battery and I leave it overnight because I'm done with it, with this. And I'm going, God, this is your problem. You got to deal with this now. I put the battery cable back on in the morning and I started up one more time. And wouldn't you know, it's at 800 RPMs idle, exactly where it's supposed to be. <coughs> my mechanic friend calls me. He goes, how'd you fix it? I said, I didn't. God fixed my car. Make no mistake about it. I really believe that. I really do. But it took days 
of me being angry and frustrated and trying to, trying to access every other resource I could to finally give up and let God fix it. Now, it seems like it would have saved me a whole lot of pain and agony if I would have just let God fix it out of the gate. And I think that's the way we handle our problems sometimes in life. But with a, a few exceptions, because David certainly made mistakes, David always believed that God could fix it. We didn't, we didn't talk very much about the story of David and Goliath in this series because we, we mostly know it, but I've always remarked at how David walks up, this kid walks up, and, and all these people are saying, we can't fight this giant, and him just being incredulous, just going, are you kidding? We are God's people. We are God's people, and you are scared of the tall guy? Come on! And he just looks at them like they're all crazy, and he dives out there because why? Not because he's nuts, which he might be a little bit, but because he knows that God is in charge. It helps explain the way that David looks at Saul. David had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. And quite frankly, if somebody was chasing me down and throwing things at me and throwing armies at me and trying to kill me, and I had a chance to take him out, I would be heavily tempted to do so. And yet David says, no, Saul is God's anointed one. God has put him in charge in this time for this reason. I know that God has promised me his day, my day is coming, and I will get there. But it won't be because I took out or tried to change what God's plan was. God is in charge. Most profoundly, though, I think, is, is the way David handles the death of Bathsheba's child. David, before the child dies, spends time praying fasting and he won't eat and his people are so worried about him they're going you're gonna starve you're gonna die you've got to eat something he's like no I'm not gonna eat anything and he prays and he prays and he prays and he wears sackcloth and has ashes on his head and he won't he won't talk to anybody because he knows that if anything and anyone can save his child it will be God not a doctor not him not anything else it will be the Lord that saves his child but then when his child is not saved he does something that throws him for a loop. He begins to eat. He stands up and goes on about his day. And when they ask him why, he said, well, while, I, while the child was still living, I know God could have saved him, but he's chosen not to. And that I must accept. And that may be the hardest part of seeing God as sovereign, is that we have to accept that his ways may be better than our ways not understand where he's headed or what he's doing, but he knows better. When you're a child growing up, you believe your mom knows better, right? Mom is God on the lips of children. I've heard that many times. I personally believe that my mom always knew everything. On my first date, I went on a date once, on my first date, I didn't have a driver's license and neither did my friend. And we went on a double date with these two girls. And we took the bus. <laughs> awesome. So I, I rode the bus over to her house, and I went and picked her up, 
And then I, we, we all got on the bus together, and we rode the bus to the movie theater. It was awesome. I'm walking across the parking lot with them. I've got my arm around her and, and, and her around me, which is good. That would just been weird. And, and, and my friend's got his arm around his girlfriend, and, and we're walking across the parking lot, and we're just talking away. And all of a sudden, from behind me, this horn just blares. I mean, they're like six inches off my backside. And I turn around, and it's my mother. My mom is cackling and laughing and driving away. <laughs> mom, if you're listening to this on audio, that, I needed lots of therapy to get past. I'm kidding. Um, but, but I was convinced from that moment on that my mom always knew where I was going to be, what I was going to be doing. You have no idea the, the impact that had of keeping me out of trouble in my life. Because I was sure she knew. Sure she knew. One of the um, most difficult things I've ever had to deal with um, was when I was, I was working as a restaurant manager. <coughs> which, if you know me, you know I did for a long time. And I had a young lady um, named Stacy, beautiful young lady, she's 19, that um, wasn't supposed to work one day. And um, we were short people. And I was on the phone with her for 20 minutes trying to beg her and convince her to come to work. And she finally said, okay, I'll come to work. And she, and, and she did. Um, but she didn't make it to work. Um, Stacy was hit by a car and killed on her way to work. It took me a lot of years to not blame myself for it. Because I did. should still be here. <laughs> Accepting that God's ways are greater than my ways means accepting, as David did, that sometimes things are not going to turn out the way that I would want them to or hope they would. But they will turn out as they should. It's a difficult thing to buy into hardest thing I think about faith is understanding that God is the one who writes the story. God is the one who makes it all possible. And it may not go the way I want it to or the way I think it should. David understood that. And it's important that we understand that. That we understand that God is in charge. God also David also sees God as the writer of the story. The writer of the story knows his characters more than anybody else in the story knows his characters or her characters if she's the writer. J.K. Rowling uh, writes the stories called what? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, that's right. I looked at the teenagers, but I guess it's just a little about all of you. Harry Potter. 
When asked who her favorite characters are, she would say Dumbledore, which she got a lot of trouble for killing off. People were screaming at her, right? I see heads nodding going, yeah, I was mad too. But she would say her, her absolute favorite character was Hermione because it reminds her of her as a child. Uh, Rick Riordan writes what series? Percy Jackson series, that's right, the Percy Jackson series. The lightning thief and things of that nature. <coughs> Percy in that story is dyslexic. Do you know why he made Percy dyslexic? Because his son is dyslexic. He puts a, a piece of who he is personally into those characters. Uh, author Holly, let me get her name right. Holly Robinson said her publisher once asked her to write a book in less than nine months. And she said, I can't, I can produce a baby for you in nine months. But I can't produce a book in nine months. And it's because she gets into the minds of her character. She understands every detail of who they are and how they think and why they think the way they do. David understood this about God. Have you read the Psalms? Have you read where David says in Psalm 8, God, who am I? Who are man that you made us who we are? That you put us in charge of the world? That you glorified us and made us just a little lower than the angels, despite the fact that we are a train wreck? We often don't know why we do the things we do. Did you know that? We think we do, but studies seem to indicate that often our motivated motivations are even secret to ourselves. Sometimes we get angry. We don't know why we got angry. Have you ever experienced that? No, I have. I must be the only one. God knows, though, your motivations. In John chapter 11, we see the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five 35, says Jesus, Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He wept, not because he didn't know what was going to happen, because he did. He knew he was going to bring Lazarus back. He knew it. He wept because Mary and Martha wept. He was sad because they were sad. He was inside their heads. Jesus wouldn't let himself be taken by the people once because he said there are wicked, there's wickedness in their heart. I'm not going to let you touch me. Jesus knows who you are better than you know yourself because he wrote your story. He knows. He spent years, months in the womb crafting every piece of who you are, every hair on your head, every thought you're ever going to think, which is frightening to writer of your story, and if you think he's not, you're missing out. Speaking of that, I was, in, I was listening in class this morning, and, and Jordan made references. We're talking about evangelism and what it means to, to engage people. He said, you shouldn't be afraid to tell your story of how you came to know God. I'm going to take that one higher. I'm going to say, why wouldn't you tell your story? Because just like David, your story is God's story. 
You can't excitedly tell somebody who God is and where he's been in your life and where he's moved and where he's shaken you and where he's changed you and where he's written who you're going to be and how he knows you more than anybody else. You are missing out on your greatest gift God has given you to tell others about him. You, your story is the greatest gift God can give you in telling others about him. Don't worry so much about do you know all the answers. As Jordan said this morning, I don't know is okay. They're great words to use. But know your story. Because it's the greatest gift God has ever given you. How you found him. How you found salvation in him. He wrote your story and he wants you to tell it. Right? David tells his story. The book of Psalms is David telling his story. David's pleas, David's prayers, David's, David's praises and affirmations are David telling the story of who God is in his life. David knows that God is not an option. God is the option. God is the producer. God is the writer of his story. Do you think God puts difficult people in your life sometimes so that help you or does it is it just to drive you crazy I walked into a church once that uh, I had just we just started attending and it was our first or second time in and this lady walks up to me and she goes um, hi and she introduces herself I'm gonna leave her name out of it to protect her and she goes hey I just want you to know um, you have no idea how to raise your children Nice to meet you. You have no idea how to raise your children. And I said, excuse me? And, and she said, well, you know, this child's got this problem and this child's got that problem and you really need to control them and you need to make sure that they've got shoes on. Oh, we ran out the door without those this morning. And, and she gave me this five minute diatribe on what I, everything I was doing wrong with my child. How did I feel today? Did, did I really, have a predisposition to consider her my friend. I would expect that out of somebody who's known me for a long time. In fact, I would appreciate that. If somebody who knew me well walked up to me and said, hey, um, I'm concerned about your child and about what you're teaching them and how you're raising them, I would appreciate that. But random person on the street or even in a church building, really? should know that to this day, this wife and her husband support us financially to do what we do. And they are close friends of ours. That took a while. <laughs> but I know her to be a woman who speaks her mind. Yes? But, but I also know her to be someone who loves the Lord with all of her heart. She has a, she has a child who is uh, profoundly disabled. And her child, when, the, when, we, when they sing in church, her child is 19 now. He is so out of key, it's ridiculous. But he is so loud and so passionate. It is unbelievable. It is absolutely encouraging. 
And I would have never gotten to know this family without God. And the truth is, it was not my predisposition to assume that this person who was giving me advice, unsolicited advice, actually cared. And actually loved me and actually wanted what was best for me. I would have counted her at one point as a difficult person in my life. I now count her as a blessing in my life. Because God put her there. God, David sees God not just as uh, the producer we've covered, the writer we've covered. He also sees him as the director. Alfred Hitchcock said that in a feature film, the director is God. The director is who brings the film to life. If I say the word Joss Whedon, the name's Joss Whedon, what do you think? Do you know? I bet you've seen his, I bet you've seen his movies. We're going to go with Avengers. Have you seen Avengers? You know who he is, right? Now you know. You know what to expect from his movies. If, you, if I say J.J. Abrams. No? Really? Star Wars, thank you. Star Trek, too, thank you. All right, let's go old. Robert Zemeckis. Back to the future. Who said that? Well done, Mr. Ritchie. Back to the future. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan. Say again? Okay. If I, if I list these directors, you know their movies. Most, some of us do, I guess. You know their movies by, by their name as much as you know it by the name of the movie itself. They have a style about them. Michael Bay is not my favorite director. He directed all the Transformers movies. Which, by the way, if you've seen the first one, you've seen them all. <laughs> now, if you are someone who loves to watch things blow up and you don't need a plot line, which I am at times, then okay. Because the director determines where the movie goes. He determines what it looks like and what it feels like and how it turns out. He has the power to change stories. The director puts everybody in their place. He determines the camera angles. He determines the props that are used. He determines the physical placement of every person. Every person in the movie. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, we run into a guy named Shammai. As David is fleeing Jerusalem, running away from Absalom, this guy named Shammai walks out onto the top of a hill and starts doing what to David? Any guesses? Throwing rocks, cursing him, calling him names, telling him he's all this and all that. And the people around Joseph... His, his generals and his army go, hey, um, we can whack that guy for you if you'd like. And David says, no, don't kill him because maybe God has put him here. Maybe he might be a little right. I was telling Alex May a story the other day that I will keep censored because this man said some things that were not okay in church or in life. But I was, again, a restaurant story. I was waiting, working up front one night, and a 
I hear we're on a wait, it was crowded. And I hear one, a, a gentleman um, cussing out one of my hostesses, screaming at her, calling her names. And he was calling her names because he couldn't get into the smoking section, because that's how far back this was. We had one of those, <laughs> right? Couldn't get into the smoking section. We had to wait. And we said, well, you can go sit in this other area. It was our bar. You can sit in our bar with your, with your child, which was legal in Indiana, and, and in a booth, and, and that you can smoke in there. And he's like, no, no, no. My child's not going into a bar. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, right? I know it sounds bad, doesn't it? All right. So, but you can, but I, I want to sit in the smoking section right now. My hostess is being sweet as pie. And so I, I'm overhearing this as I'm talking to another guest that I know very well and we're having a conversation. So I walk over to him and I said, excuse me, sir, is there anything I can do to help you? And he turns around and starts cussing me out. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what is wrong with you, right? There's 50 people in my lobby you are calling me names. You're embarrassing yourself, right? And, and I finally just had to say, I'm sorry, sir. I don't think we can help you this evening. As he's going out the door, he walks out the door and down to the end of the sidewalk right next to the, to the parking lot. And he proceeds to turn around and, and scream profanities at me. I'm standing in the doorway and people are walking in, coming in, and they're looking at me and looking at him. And I'm like... I don't know. <laughs> and, they, and they all come inside, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness sakes. So I calm my hostess down, and she's fine. And, and, and then I go back out and hold the door open again, because I do that. I hold the door open for people when they're coming in. And, and this had to be four or five minutes later. I hear off in the distance that the two parking lots over, Something clicked in me that day. And, and, and the placement of that guy screaming profanities at me as I watched his wife and his child with their head down, just embarrassed, just trying to, to haul him away. Something clicked in my head where I went, I don't know what's going on in people's lives outside of their contact with know what this man has gone through that would cause him to get to the place where this is okay to him, where this is right to him, or this is necessary to him. And I really do believe that God put that person to cuss me out so that I would stop and ponder the bigger picture of life. As David said, maybe God put him there, here, for this reason. Remind me of a mistake I've made or to cause me to stop and think. Even difficult people are written by God into your life. Sometimes so that you can impact them, but sometimes so they can impact you. The next time you're frustrated with somebody at work, stop for a minute and say, maybe they're here to help me learn something about me. Maybe God has written them into the story for a reason.
In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. As he's bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, I, I, I envision this as David giving his speech in front of the Academy, the Academy Awards, right? If you have a great movie and a great film, that you, and somebody wins an award, they walk up and they say, thank you to, right, the producers, thank you to my wife, thank you to the, to the people on the crew, thank you to the fellow actors, thank you to the director, thank you to the writers, thank you to everybody else for doing this. But I see David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 as he's hauling the ark back in Jerusalem and he's realizing that God is back in Jerusalem, back at home, back with him. David is dancing in front of the world. Doesn't make his wife very happy, but he's unapologetic. He's absolutely unapologetic about who God is and what God is doing. He's giving his Academy Award speech saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for being here. Thank you for, for giving me an opportunity to be in this story and the part of this story. Because there's one role that you will never see on a movie credits that is God's role. And that God, David, gives credit for. And that's God as the Redeemer. God is the one who doesn't just produce. He doesn't just write. He doesn't just direct. God is the one who makes it all right. God is the one who redeems all of us. It's, it's why David, in the very end of this little speech in the Song of Deliverance in chapter 22, he can start in verse 21 and he can say, The Lord reward, rewarded me according to my righteousness. Is David overly righteous? You've heard the stories. He repaid me according to the cleanliness of my hands. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not turned from my God to wickedness. I'm pretty sure David had some people killed to cover up a lie. I'm pretty sure David did some things that he should not have done with a young lady named Bathsheba. I'm pretty sure that David was told by God, you will not build my temple because your ways are bloody. You kill people to get what you want. And yet David is able to sing this, righteously sing this. Indeed, I have kept all his ordinances in my mind, and I have not disregarded his statutes. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from sinning. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. How could David possibly see himself this way? He is either delusional or he's redeemed. greatest credit in all of our stories. God has redeemed us from ourselves, from our mistakes, from the wickedness that sometimes comes from within. God has redeemed you from that. If that's not a reason for you to be David, to haul the ark into Jerusalem and to excitedly tell the world who your God is, I don't know what is. Yes, we need to remember that he is the producer. Yes, we need to remember he is the writer. Yes, we need to remember he is the director of our lives. But he is the redeemer of our souls. He is the redeemer of our mistakes. He is our salvation. Can I get an amen for that, please? 
Oh my goodness! It doesn't get better than that. God is your redeemer. And David understood that more than anybody else, maybe in history, other than Jesus Christ himself. David understood that salvation comes from God. That he can make any mess go away. That he can even clean that shirt. God is that awesome. And he is in the credits of your life as he was in David's. And he's written in the credits of history. And his name is bigger than any other name you're ever going to see. Closing prayer.